Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with world-renowned author and 2016 George Washington Prize recipient Nathaniel Philbrick to discuss his latest book, In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown. As a friendly reminder, there are still tickets available for our upcoming Lunch and Fellowship program with research fellow George Goodwin on May 23. In the program, he will talk about his latest findings regarding the topic, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and the propaganda and intelligence war in the British Isles and Europe during the American Revolution. For more information about the event, please go to our webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. And now, without further ado, we join Dr. Butterfield and Nathaniel Philbrick in the studio. This is the third book you've written on the American Revolution. I wonder if you could briefly tell us about what the first two were. Yeah, well, it began for me with Bunker Hill. And I got—I really didn't think I was going to write three books about the Revolution. I, uh, you know, Most of my books tend to be about groups of people under enormous stress, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's the crew of the Mayflower bound for a coast about which the 102 pilgrims know nothing, or the crew of a whale ship that's just been rammed by a whale, that kind of thing. And I was curious what the town of Nantucket, I mean, excuse me, I say Nantucket, but I think of it in uh, Boston as an island, as Mm -hmm. is Nantucket. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was really interested in that story. Boston was an island at the time of the Revolution with 15,000 people, which happens to be the population of Nantucket now, year-round. And so I was, having having lived in uh, a community that size, I wanted to sort of see what happened when the tremendous pressures of a revolution um, hit that community. And so... um, that, be, that was Bunker Hill. The obvious climax, in a way, of that was the battle. Um, mm-hmm. But I was really interested in the gentleman who shows up a few weeks later, uh, uh, George Washington, uh, who right. was um, a different kind of leader than I expected, given his subsequent reputation as a defensive-minded um, general. And uh, so I, I just couldn't let George Washington go, and that led me to my next book, Valiant Ambition, in which I paired uh, Wa- Washington with Benedict Arnold. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed kind of natural uh, with Washington becoming, over the course of the next four years, that truly indispensable man, and with Benedict Arnold, one of Washington's best generals, becoming over that four-year period, uh, making the decision it's his destiny to try to tear what Washington is holding together apart uh, with his attempt at, at uh, surrendering West Point to the British. And so that's valiant ambition, which ends with, uh, with, with uh, the, the uh, Benedict Arnold's tre- uh, treason. And you know, I now then I had to finish it. And um, you know, a lot of my books are are maritime oriented. And um, I knew there was a naval battle lurking there mm-hmm. in the year of Yorktown. So that I I really wanted to to uh, go there. At, at what point did you know that you were going to write about Yorktown? Did you know it all the way back when you were writing about Bunker Hill? No, I didn't. I I went into Bunker Hill kind of as an experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most of my books I go from 
one topic to a very and completely different topic. I really enjoy the process of learning about something new. Uh, I don't write these books because I'm an expert in the topic. I write them because I haven't. I'm curious about them. I haven't read the book that I'd like to read, so I'll write it. Yeah. And um, and so that's how I sort of got into the revolution. And it's been a really different kind of experience for me. You know, this is it's been eight years now, as long as the revolution itself, that I've uh, been in this topic. And it's been fascinating. Mm-hmm. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. So uh, Yorktown, let's, let's focus on, on this, this, this wonderful uh, third and newest book on the revolution. Um, could you set the stage for us uh, in terms of, uh, just very briefly, the state of the war uh, yeah. before the, the period that, that ultimately will culminate in this great battle? What, what, how are things going uh, for either side? It's a stalemate, really. It's, you know, we, uh, it, it was one of these things where Washington described it as this war drags on like a cart with no wheels. Hmm. <laughs> you know, he wow. was in a stalemate um, with uh, Sir Henry Clinton, who was dug into New York and had been there for a couple of years. Uh, The good thing was that the French had joined the war on our behalf in 1778, but they hadn't really done anything to help us. And uh, there was uh, General Rochambeau and 5,000 soldiers and a small fleet in Newport, but the the British Navy, uh, the most powerful naval force on earth, had them bottled up. You know, they had they arrived in the summer of 1780 and had gone nowhere um, uh, well into the the fall of that year. And what was happening was happening down in the south, and it was not good for the Americans. Uh, Horatio Gates, the uh, supposed hero of Sar- the Battle of Saratoga, uh, was completely humiliated at the Battle of Camden in South Carolina mm-hmm. by Cornwallis. You know, just his army was eviscerated, and um, you know that wasn't good. And then. Um, you have Benedict Arnold, uh, his his treason, and you know he now becomes uh, Great Britain's newest uh, brigadier general, and he is sent down into the Chesapeake, and you know this is all bad stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, so Washington was really at wit's end. Um, you know he, he he at one point he describes it as being at the end of the tether. Um, you know the, the it seemed like the American people had kind of given up on the cause they so ardently embraced in this 1776. They weren't willing to pay uh, the taxes required to fund Washington's army. Recruitment levels were were very low. Uh, you know, it just wasn't looking good. And, and what Washington realized by the fall of 1780, if it didn't happen in the next year, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, France, this was going on much longer than France ever anticipated. Uh, they might very well settle on something that would give Great Britain uh, the colonies that they occupied, and that would be the end of this Republican experiment. Wow. So as we, uh, as we come closer to, to, the, to the battle that, that, uh, that we'll focus on today, I wonder if you could um, describe who's where uh, as, we're, as we're coming close to, to your town. You said the battle has moved south. Where's yeah. George Washington? Where, where, where yeah. are the forces? Well, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's almost the full uh, length of the Atlantic coastline. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Rochambeau dug in in Newport. You have Washington uh, at, at, uh, on the Hudson. Um, sort of glaring at Sir Henry Clinton in New York with more than 10,000 British soldiers. That's the biggest force. Uh, 
and um, and then you have uh, in the the after the defeat of Horatio Gates, Washington sends Nathaniel Green, uh, that great fighting Quaker from Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. We on Nantucket love our fighting Quakers. <laughs> sends him south to replace Gates, and so uh, and so he heads down into actually South Carolina. Uh, in an attempt to deal with Lord Cornwallis, who's threatening to bring uh, the war from South Carolina into North Carolina. Meanwhile, you have uh, uh, Benedict Arnold arriving in the Chesapeake uh, in January of 1781 and uh, marching up the James River and soon uh, Richmond, uh, the temporary wartime capital that was supposedly too far inland for the enemy to touch. You see uh, Richmond in flames and Governor Thomas... Uh, Jefferson uh, flee- running for his life, and something you know, he never really let down. No, it, no, it didn't. <laughs> this would be the blot that would uh, follow him, really, all the way to the end. But and so, and Washington desperately, and you know, this is personal. Uh, this is the traitor uh, on his home turf, and Washington sends Lafayette, that young French general who was kind of a surrogate son for him, with a small force to try to. Uh, uh, contain uh, uh, Arnold in some way. And so that's sort of where things are. And, you know, what Washington feels is, you know, the only way he can, we have any chance of winning this is if the French Navy can help him. And, um, and you know, but so far that hasn't happened. So describe the state of the high seas for me. I, I, you mentioned the greatest navy in the world, but uh, just in a global sense, uh, yeah. What tell, tell me about the high seas. Well, uh, you know, it's it's uh, naval warfare at that time was very different from today. Obviously, the technology was very different, and I think we have a tendency to think of that technology as almost quaint. You know, those mm-hmm. beautiful tall ships, but that's that's really misguided because uh, a, a ship of the line, uh, which w- and naval warfare was fought. Uh, um, with a line of battle in which uh, two opposing fleets would line up um, across from one another, uh, the ships one after the other, uh, almost it was a defensive formation in which they were trying to create a floating equivalent of a, a fort, really, supporting each other as they fired their cannons at the enemy, uh, sometimes as close as just 100 yards away from them. You know, these are huge, huge cannons, of cannonballs, 20 pounds, some up to 30 pounds, um, uh, firing away at one another. And, and, you know, these ships of the line were magnificent. Um, uh, uh, the, by this point, they had evolved to the point that they had decided that the 74 was the uh, optimal size. A 74 was 74 cannons, mm-hmm. um, uh, 500 to 700. 150 men. It uh, uh, took uh, 2,000 oak trees to build one of them. That's 54 acres of forest. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was the absolute height of 18th century technology. And if one of these vessels, if one ship of the line sailed into a harbor along the American coastline, uh, the American people had nothing they could do but surrender because one of these ships had more cannons than Washington's army at the very beginning of the war. And so, you know, you had to have a very sophisticated uh, uh country and society to support a navy. And we had a navy at this point, but it was not doing much to help us at all. What, is, what did the French have? The French had the 
second best navy in the world. And what's interesting is they had been humiliated in the uh, previous decade uh, in the, the what we call the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. Mm-hmm. And you know they had lost Canada, their ally Spain uh, had lost uh, Florida and and much of that uh, uh, what we call Alabama and New Orleans and all that. And um, and so even before that war was over, France had decided to launch a program of what they called revanche, revenge. And they knew the way to, to uh, get back uh, some of their lost status was by, by retooling their navy. And so they created a naval academy uh, that is still in Brest today. A, a professor there was a huge help to me in my research. And uh, they created a whole different approach to naval warfare. They, they applied the enlightenment, enlightenment ideals and studied it uh, uh, quantitatively. They created tactical guides that were way beyond anything in Britain. And when uh, France entered the war uh, in the spring of 1778, and there were some initial skirmishes uh, in the English Channel, uh, it was almost ob- quickly obvious that this was a different French Navy. Uh, they they had a whole new signaling system. You know, this was before telephone, uh, uh, radios, and phones and things. So, uh, Admiral communicated his wishes with signal flags, and the English were using a system from the previous century. Uh, uh, the, the French had come up with a much more sophisticated numeracy system. And so, um, you know, this was, this was something which, used in the right way, gave Washington a legitimate hope that he could somehow pull off a victory, but he could only do it with the help of the French Navy. So you, you mentioned at the outset that there, there, there's a, a big naval battle that, that's looming uh, that brings us up to Yorktown. Um, what is it? What is this? What is this great turning point in the war? Because I know that American schoolchildren learn about the Battle of Yorktown. Absolutely. Uh, but there's there's something else. Talk, describe yeah. It. Well, that's the way I learned about it. You know, there's the great victory at Yorktown that won us our independence. Well, um, it's as I, I've come to appreciate uh, in writing this book, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, is p- to put center stage what really should be center stage. Because without the naval battle fought between the British and the French involving no American ships, um, Yorktown would not have happened. In fact, you could argue that Yorktown was, and I think this is the appropriate term given uh, what, who made it possible, that victory possible, was a fait accompli <laughs> based on the fact uh, that um, uh, the, the French were finally able to prevail at sea. And what set this up was that uh, Cornwallis uh, runs uh, all over uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, uh, has this titanic stru- uh, meeting with Nathaniel Green at the bat- in the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in March. The British technically win because they have possession of the field, but Cornwallis's army has been really badly mauled. He retreats uh, to Wilmington, North Carolina to regroup, even though he probably should have turned back to South Carolina and, and helped consolidate what they had there. He decides to go aggressive, to push on into Virginia. He takes over from Benedict Arnold. Any idea why? Um, you know, it, it, people, we still scratch our heads about that. Uh, uh, already, Cornwallis was displaying an aggression that Green could not understand. You know, he, he said, you know, he's he's threatening to throw everything away because when you look at the long, you know, the strat- long-term strategy, all the British had to do was just hang in there. 
and the likelihood it would just all fall apart for the Americans. The only way they could lose it was if they, you know, did something uh, to to hand a defeat to the the enemy. You know, but Cornwallis was for uh, personal reasons, for uh, reasons of honor, for reasons out of frustration, decided to keep pushing. And it was he had the uh, approval of of the of the king uh, because you know you you want a general who fights. It's very hard headlines are not made out of a, uh, a, um, a, a defensive-minded uh, uh, struggle. Right. And so Cornwallis, you know, had, had, had support. Uh, he didn't really have the support of, of Sir Henry Clinton in New York, who, who really recognized that this is nuts if, to keep pushing this. It's a very dangerous game. And Cornwallis pushes into the Chesapeake, and he and, and Lafayette basically chase each other around the tidewater. And eventually, you know, and this is in summer, and no time for offensive operations. And eventually, uh, Cornwallis digs into that little hamlet at the end of the point formed by the York and James River, Yorktown, uh, mm-hmm. to create a naval base. Uh, and um, suddenly, uh, this sets up an opportunity that hadn't existed up until that point. Now there are 7,000 British soldiers in one place at the end of this lonely point and if um, if France, if the French Navy can sail into the Chesapeake, establish naval superiority in that area, that will enable an Allied army uh, composed of the Americans and the French to arrive at the Chesapeake, surround Cornwallis, and get that victory. The problem, and it all hinges on the French establishing naval superiority. So how do they do that? Well. And it's been really hard to do for the last mm-hmm. three years. They've been trying to do it, coordinating a, a fleet of you know, ocean of, of sailing ships based in the Caribbean, because that's where they were, mm-hmm. with a land-based army based in New York and Newport. It's really, really hard, if not impossible. But in the end of August uh, 1781, the impossible happened. Uh, uh, Admiral de Grasse and a fleet of 28 ships of the line sails into the Chesapeake. Cornwallis is in Yorktown. Bam, there they are. They've established superiority. Washington hears this. Um, uh, in, uh, it sounds almost accidental as you describe it there. Uh, almost, because, you know, uh, Washington wanted the French Navy to sail up uh, to, to New York. Uh, that, because up until the middle of August, there was no target in the Chesapeake. Cornwallis was moving. You mm-hmm. know, there was no opportunity to, to do what would ultimately unfold. And there was in New York where Clinton was dug in with a very large army. Uh, so that the conditions were right there. But the French didn't like New York Harbor. Uh, the, the Sandy Hook, there's a bar. Much easier to go into the Chesapeake. And so even though Washington was under the impression the French Navy would g- at least give New York a try, and if they didn't want to go there and wanted to go to the Chesapeake, they could load up his army and sail it down to the Chesapeake. That's the way you transport armies, if you have naval superiority. Mm-hmm. But the French kind of ignored 
ignored Washington's wishes and just went for the Chesapeake. In retrospect, it all worked out because Cornwallis cooperated by digging into Yorktown just as just weeks before all of this, before DeGrasse's arrival. Uh, Washington hears that that's what's going to happen, says, okay, it's not what I intended, but uh, we will march 500 miles into the killing uh, heat of, of a tidewater summer and try to get down there, hoping, praying that uh, the French can establish naval superiority. What is the British? What, are, what is the British Navy doing? Well, the British say, "Sure, great, but checkmate." Here comes a large British force down from New York. They didn't have twenty-eight ships of the line, but it was pretty darn close. And up until this point, when two uh, fleets, uh, uh, one from France and one from Britain, met. Brits almost always won. I mean, it, that was just the way it seemed to go. Mm-hmm. And so Washington is on his way south. He's, he's um, uh, uh, in fact, he's arrived in Mount Vernon with uh, General Rochambeau and their ar- allied army. He's heard that de Grasse has arrived. Uh, uh, you know, he hasn't been to Mount Vernon in six years, you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty, you know, but he's only there for a few days. And then he gets a dispatch. Yes, de Grasse arrived, but a large British force has just arrived. De Grasse has sailed out to meet them. That was days ago. No one knows what happened. And so, you know, Washington goes, oh, my goodness, now what? And so given what had happened in the past, he had to be worried. He was very worried, but he continued to march on towards Williamsburg. And what would happen is um, uh, probably the, the most important naval battle in the history of the world, get, given the ultimate result. Because uh, the Brit- British, if the British defeated de Grasse outside the, the, the Cape, Capes of the Chesapeake, in what I call the Battle of the Chesapeake, it's also, also known as the Battle of the Capes, and um, if, if the British... Under Admiral de Gra- under Gra- Admiral Graves defeat the the French, they'll sail in to the Chesapeake, rescue Lord Cornwallis just as Washington and Rochambeau arrive, sail back to New York and run you know take West Point, leaving Washington and Rochambeau with nothing. Mm-hmm. That would have been an absolute disaster, mm-hmm. but not this time. De Grasse prevails over over the uh, the British. It's it's a wonderful battle that goes. You know, at one point you think the British have it. In fact, they did. But no, then you think De Grasse has it. No, but well, anyways, ultimately, uh, the French do pull it off, forcing the British back to New York for repairs. Just as Washington and Rochambeau arrive with their armies, it all clicks in. The trap springs closed, and uh, the, the siege of Yorktown begins. And um, it takes a matter of weeks. Uh, and the French were uh, some of the most expert artillerymen uh, in the in the world. And and were you know, I think this was uh, Rochambeau's 14th siege. So you know he he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the end of October, Cornwallis is forced to uh, surrender. 
You, yeah, I'm, I'm picking up a theme of, of technology mattering. Uh, yeah. The communications technology with the French Navy, uh, the, the technology of siege warfare. Uh, is, is that something that you've, you've learned here? Is that the, the varying states of technological uh, advancement uh, had a, a real outcome, a real right. impact on the outcome? Oh, absolutely. And, and communication, too. I mean, you know, this is, you know, we're in an age of instant communication. Mm-hmm. This was when, you know, it took more than a month for uh, a message to get across the Atlantic. Um, if, you're, if the fleet was in, you know, it, you had to do it by uh, messages on ships going back and forth. And the French were very careful to transport their messages on very fast frigates uh, and um, and very technologically advanced frigates. The British were much more lax, using smaller vessels, not as fast vessels, mm. and twice key messages from uh, coming up from the Caribbean uh, to New York would be lost because of that. You know, abs- you know, you just don't recover from that kind of thing. And so, yes, technology is very important. And this, you know, this is where the alliance was so important. You know, we didn't have that technology. There was no way a, you know, a newly created um, uh, country uh, could compete with another uh, country, particularly one like Great Britain in terms of its navy. And by, by, with this alliance, we had that opportunity. And it was just such the briefest of windows were open uh, wow. in this. And uh, it all fell into place. And, you know, and no one had this figured out. The French, in retrospect, would say, oh, yes, you know, we, we knew the Chesapeake was the key. But, you know, it, 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 so much had to happen outside of the Fr- French or, or American or British control that, um, uh, you know, it just sort of broke our way, as Washington would later say, you know, if you don't believe in God, <laughs> just look at what happened in that year of Yorktown, wow. uh, and that will convince you. So take us to the end of the siege, uh, when, it, when it comes to a close, uh, uh, and Cornwallis surrenders. Uh, tell us about that scene. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually, uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, um, to think, you know, after uh, six and a half years of war, uh, that you know uh, struggles up and down the coast. That it has come down to this: um, uh, the the British army under Lord Cornwallis, Cornwallis surrendering, and you know they, a gauntlet was formed uh, with the Americans on one side, the the French on the other. The British had to march through that gauntlet uh, to an area where they surrendered their arms. Uh, they refused to look uh, towards the Americans. They looked only at the, the French because from their perspective, they weren't beaten by the Americans. They were beaten by a rival European power. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's just you know, unimaginable. And, um, you know, and so it's, it's, it's where it all came down to that. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, it's, it's almost like a historical vortex where was created there. You have, you know, at that point, it's the most uh, densely populated part, point of North America with these two huge armies, these huge navy out there. It's just all of these people Mm -hmm. are here so briefly and um, and it, and it you know it's all gone our way after all these years of up and down a roller coaster where it could have gone any way, and so um, uh, it's it's it really is extraordinary. You describe a dinner uh, just after the end of the battle uh, where uh, I'll just mention one anecdote that stood out to me that George Washington felt horribly. 
uh, offended maybe is yep. the best word for it. Maybe it is. Uh, but if you could just tell us about that dinner. Yeah. Well, you know, we think of the, our alliance with uh, France as being this wonderful, you know, cooperative thing. And, and in many ways it was. But the reality was that the, 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 the French officers and the American officers were cut from very different cloth. Um, you know, the, the, the French were, like their, their British counterparts, were of their nobility. And, um, and they, they didn't have, um, they were not impressed by their, their American counterparts. And when it came, and Washington uh, hosted a dinner after Cornwallis' defeat. Cornwallis um, uh, uh, didn't attend uh, that initial one, but um, uh, there would be other dinners. But during this, uh, the, the British and the French officers get on famously. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the uh, account of a Hessian officer who was witnessed this, and, and it was clear that uh, the American officers were getting miffed. You know, come on, uh, you know, what is this? And clearly, you know, they were. You know, it's like we've all been to parties where we felt like you know we were <laughs> being you know outside of the cool kids. Yeah. And and so at one point Washington made it clear he was not amused by this. And um, uh, uh, you know, and you know, but the great irony is that the forces unleashed by this victory um, would, uh, w- one thing that would happen is it would bankrupt the French government mm-hmm. that would then, you know, be forced into the, the series of events that would lead to the French Revolution. And many of those officer, aristocratic officers would lose their beautifully coiffed heads on the guillotines uh, as the, the, kind of the forces that had generated the American Revolution spread to Europe. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting, fascinating, and extraordinary moment in not only American but world history. I wonder if, if in closing, is there something you've learned about George Washington, uh, either in this book or over the course of the trilogy, uh, that really stands out to you as, as a particularly surprising or, or revealing thing about the man? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in the iconoclastic 60s where I really had a, you know, it was hard to have a, you know, you could have a, it was hard to think of a founding father as a hero, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and, and I, I'm naturally kind of skeptical. But after writing these three books and watching him evolve, uh, not only as a military leader, but as a human being, um, and 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 I, I have nothing but the he he general, genuinely qualifies in my book as a hero. I mean, he had that ability to surrender uh, what he wanted for a greater good. Um, and you know he he didn't want this scenario. He wanted to have his glory in New York, but he realized, nope. The only way it's going to work is this way, and he completely, uh, he expressed his anger privately, but then completely went along with it. There's very few people who can learn on the job, can um, uh, uh, deal with anger in a productive way, put it, you know, yes, feel it, put it aside, and then judge uh, coolly what needs to happen next. That is very hard to do, mm-hmm. particularly after six and a half years of very frustrating conflict. Washington did it, and um, it's extraordinary. I mean, there's just not a lot of people like him, uh, but he, you know, he learned on the uh, on the you know on the job under probably some of the most difficult uh, circumstances a leader has ever had to face. I thank you so much for talking with us. I've really enjoyed it. Well, it's been awfully fun to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. 
Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.